Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Dr. Daniel Hartman. Hello, good evening, everyone. Let me explain to you what we're gonna do. I was asked to reflect on and for us to study together. How does the Jewish tradition understand the meaning of the land of Israel? How do we relate to this issue and this idea of land? Now, this is an issue that the Jewish people have been thinking about, we're gonna see, for 3,000 years. From the first moment that our story starts, we start thinking about the meaning of land. It becomes even more critical, not merely as we return to the land and it was critical for Zionism, it becomes especially critical post 1967, when the issue of the importance of the land is juxtaposed with other values. How important is the land? How important are other countries' peace? How important are rights? What is more important, what is not important? So this 3,000-year-old idea that we've been thinking about is actually one of those central issues in contemporary Israeli life. Even, and we're not talking about this today, even the issue of the reform of the judiciary for a not insignificant segment of Israeli society the Supreme Court becomes the enemy because it did not stop the withdrawal from Gaza. A major part of the issue is, is the Supreme Court on my side or is it the enemy? And once it allowed the relinquishing of Jewish control over part of the land of Israel, it became an institution that we have to curtail. Now, all of that is just to serve as a framework, and we're going to leave that aside now. Now, when the Jewish people are given a name, we're called the, the, the people of the children of Israel, but the people of the book. People of the book. People of the book speaks to an identity that's disconnected from space. People of the book, it's a people who can transport themselves anywhere just like you could transport a book. We are a people defined by a book, people defined by, a land, by, by an idea, not a people defined by space. Now this was one of the calling cards of the Jewish people. Oh, I'm walking around and I'm forgetting. I'm supposed to stand right here. <laughs> Something very powerful about people being a people of the book. And when you look at Jewish history, our story is a story of a people who survived and thrived because we were the carriers of ideas. We were the most powerful. We were the wealthiest. We stood for something. We didn't stand somewhere, we stood 
for something. And now we've become a people who, in addition to standing for something, also stand. Part of us stands somewhere. And so how do we understand this idea of land? Now, anybody who teaches you texts makes choices. We choose which text to bring to you. And we also choose the order of the texts that we bring to you. And therefore, it is critical that you understand that any teacher, no matter how much they share with you sources, is profoundly biased. And I'm also profoundly biased. As I look, or as we begin this journey to talk about the significance of the land, it's important that we begin with a fascinating section in the Book of Kings, source two. In the book of Kings, Kings 1, chapter 8, the Bible tells us of the holiest place in the land of Israel, the temple. This is the story of the inauguration of the temple, the dedication of the temple. The Jewish people moved into Israel a couple of hundred years beforehand. They fought, they moved, they did. Finally, God gives permission to King Solomon to build a temple to God. They centralize the worship in one place. And that place is going to be the focus of the connection between God and the Jewish people. But at that moment, let's read this remarkable text together. In the first stage, they're now in verse 9, describing what's going on in the Holy of Holies. There was nothing inside the ark, but the two tablets of stone, which Moses placed there at Korah. At the center of the Holy of Holies is the ark. What's in the ark? Just two sets of tablets, the broken one and the full one, which is a story for another time. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they departed from the land of Egypt, when the priests came out of the sanctuary, now why did they leave the sanctuary? Because as it's being dedicated, a cloud had filled the house of the Lord. Imagine, we're dedicating this temple to God, and the priests are inside, and they have to leave because a cloud is permeating the room. Symbolizing what? Who's entering the room? God, right? God is beginning to take the space, and as God takes the space, we have to leave that space physically. It's not a conceptual idea. It literally is a physical idea. And by the way, this section is very consistent with much of the Bible, which sees God as having a physical form. It's only really in the Middle Ages that the Jewish people really eradicated the idea of any physicality to the vision, more influenced by Greek philosophy than by Torah. But when the priest came out of the sanctuary for the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, 
and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud. And now, in case you didn't know, for the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon declared, the Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud. Here it is. Holy space, holy of holy. What makes this space holy? God literally resides there. And the land of Israel, within which the temple resides, is therefore a vessel in which God descends from earth and physically locates God's self. We all there? Okay. I feel bad if you're going to stand. <laughs> um, and I would also feel bad if you're going to be hungry. So feel free to just take a plate and then come sit. Okay? Now, this is the first part. And now comes the surprising section. After this, Solomon begins his famous prayer to God. As, as the, the temple is dedicated and the presence of the Lord fills the space, now Solomon turns to God and begins a conversation. And Solomon says as follows, And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be confirmed which you spoke to your servant, David, my father. Your word was to build a house for me. Solomon sees that God is now residing. Just let that be fulfilled. Let this truly be your house. But now Solomon realizes that the notion of a house of God is actually a complicated and maybe even an incoherent idea. Why? But will God indeed, indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Solomon realizes I'm building a house to God, but is this really God's place? Is God really going to be residing here? The heavens and the heaven, the heavens of heavens cannot be God's space. God transcends space. God is larger than space. Notice little footnote. It's not that God doesn't have a physical form. It's just God cannot be contained in a limited space. Yet, even though I know that Solomon says that physically this can't be your space. Yet, please, God, have regard for the prayer of your servant and for his supplication. O Lord, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you to this day, that your eyes may be what here you're having a definition of holy space. You ready? It's not a place that God resides, but a place that your eyes may be open towards this house night and day, towards the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. Who is going to be in this house? No. Who? The word I just read it. That's a that's a it's a hint. Your name, your name, not you, because you can't be contained in a physical space. Your name will reside here. 
may you please watch this place so that throughout history, the idea of a holy place is not a place which contains the divinity. It is a place through which people can feel that they are connecting to God. So if I want to speak to God, what am I going to do? It's hard trying to relate to a God who's infinite and transcends space. Where do I turn? In fact, God is right here. God is as much here as God is in Jerusalem. It's all over the record. For people, the idea of a holy space is less a theological statement and it is more a psychological statement. It's the place that you, people, direct your prayers so that you could feel that God is listening. Now, why am I starting here? This is a class about the land of Israel. The minute you take monotheism seriously, and as you progress in your monotheistic journey, the idea of holy space and holy land becomes problematic. I want us to think about the idea of the land of Israel in the context of monotheism. We're going to see, and maybe we'll even start there, that for some people, the land of Israel literally is the place where uh, it's God's home, where God resides. Please turn to me, turn, turn with me to source six. Just also a little trick. The reason why we dance between the order is that's the way I protect my intellectual property. <laughs> you think you're going to teach this class according to this? You have no idea. So we mix up the uh, just joke. Okay. Leviticus 18 says as follows. Do not defile yourself in any of those ways which the local Canaanites defiled themselves. For it is by such that the nations that I am casting about, casting out before you, they defile themselves. There's a whole list of sexual practices, food. This is what they did. They defiled themselves, and as a result, God says, I cast them out. Thus, listen carefully to this verse. Thus, the land became defiled. And called it to account for its iniquity. And who kicks the people out of the land of Israel? The land skewed its inhabitants. Not God. The land. Physically, the land of Israel, according to Leviticus, looks at sinners and certain practices cannot be tolerated by the land. Nachmanides and other Jewish commentators look and say, what's going on here? I can understand throughout the Bible, who has power? God has power. The whole Bible is about God's power and the ability of human beings to access that power. But here the Bible is not speaking about God's power. It's speaking about the land's power. You all with me? Nachmanides asks, what's going on here? Let's learn. Nachmanides 13, 
century Jewish philosopher, uh, commentator, on, and legal scholar. Nachmanides says, Thus the land became defiled, and I called it to account for its iniquity. And the land spewed out its inhabitants. The Torah was very stringent with regard to forbidden sexual practices on account of the land, which would be defiled by these practices, and consequently vomits out the perpetrators of these deeds. But then, why would the land become defiled when forbidden sexual practices are incumbent upon people anywhere and have no connection to the land of Israel. These same practices are forbidden wherever you live. What's so special about the land? The explanation is that while God is the creator of all, God assigned for every people and land a star or constellation, as we have learned through astrology. Regarding this, it is written, these the Lord your God allotted to other people. He apportioned to each one their constellation in heaven. Just like there are different spaces and lands down here on earth, there is a parallel division in heaven in which each space in the world is under the governance of a particular divine power. Now God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords of the whole earth. But the land of Israel, which is the center of the earth, is God's portion designated exclusively to God's name. God did not designate any angels as having power and authority over it when God gave this land to God's people who are committed to the unity of God's name the descendants of God's loved ones, the patriarchs. Regarding this, God said, you shall be my treasured possession from all the people, for all the earth is mine, and it is further written, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall not be subjugated to other divine forces at all. Therefore, the land which is God's inheritance will omit out all those who defiled it, and the land cannot tolerate idol worshippers nor sexual transgressors. All of these, God said, do not defile yourself in any of those ways, for it is by such that the nations defile themselves, and the land spewed out its inhabitants. One reading of our tradition of what land means, what is the significance of land? One reading, it does a riff on Solomon. It recognizes that God doesn't physically reside. They know that God cannot be contained. But the God creator of the earth allots demigods or angels or other forces to directly govern every space on earth with the exception of one. There is one space on earth which is exclusively governed without any mediation by God, God's self. And so the land of Israel, when we try to understand the significance of this space, this space is a space 
which, is, which has a different set of rules. God indeed governs the earth, but through mediators, through intermediates. This faith is God. And as a result, it requires of you a different mode of behavior. This gets translated into Kabbalistic and Hasidic and numerous other doctrines, which define the holiness of the land of Israel, not in psychological terms, not like Solomon who says, you know, it's kind of hard to worship a transcendent God. Give me a tool through which I could feel God listens to me. That's Solomon. To some extent, literally, this is the space which God watches closer than any other space. And as a result, the land itself has an inherent holiness. And if you, and here's another move, if you care about God, what do you have to care about? The land. You care about God, you have to care about the land. And for some, to relinquish part of the land is as if to cut up God's self. To take away a space that is under God's protection, under God's watch, is to violate divinity. So you speak about other people's rights, that's like nice. But the land of Israel has a unique status. And when the Jewish people come back to Israel in Zionism, they're not merely coming back, even though for secular Zionists, we were coming back to Israel instead of Uganda because they felt that more Jews would be connected. Because after all, for thousands of years, we prayed, we spoke about on the rivers of Babylon, we what, there we wept for my, all that, we have a closeness to it for other people. Jewish national rebirth could only take place in the land of Israel. Because it is only here that we don't just engage in an act of political independence. We engage in reconnecting the Jewish people, not merely with each other, but with God, God's self. This is one idea of land. And this idea of land, which was more marginal over the years, becomes more and more significant. Once, uh, post-1967, when what's transformed in 67 is that we are in full control of Jerusalem and of all those spaces where the biblical engagement with God and the Jewish people took place. One story of the land. Let's go to another one. Formally, the story of the Jewish people and the land doesn't start in Leviticus, and it doesn't start in the in Book of Kings. It actually starts the minute, the covenant between God and the Jewish people. God, our Bible, begins with a covenant between God and humanity. 
Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 is the story of God's relationship to the world. And we are part of that covenant by virtue of being part of that world. We talk about that covenant, but we're not. The particular Jewish covenant starts in the, or rather the exclusive Jewish one, the one that it particularly focuses on us. And it's not as Jew, it's not Jew as part of humanity, it's Jew as part of a distinct people, begins in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, that story starts as follows. What's the first thing that God says to Abraham? If you say, imagine. What's the most important thing in Judaism, according to anybody here? Give me, throw out something. Monotheism, good, good answer. What else? No, 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 don't tell me what Genesis 12 says. And by the way, here's a little trick. To learn, you have to forget. Why? Because if you don't forget, you're not going to read the text. You're going to read what you remember. Now, imagine you have to be surprised. And only if you could be surprised could you actually figure out. Now, one, the big idea of Judaism is God. One God. What's another big idea? Okay, what else? Ten Commandments. That's a good one. Love the Jewish people. So now imagine you're God. And you're about to start a conversation with the Jewish people. So the first thing I would, if I was God, that, by the way, is an exercise that we rabbis like to play with from time to time. <laughs> we do it with full humility, but it's necessary. Um, it's, a, it's a didactic tool, you know, it's a way of understanding, but still, it, it, it has its benefits. Now, either way, if I was God, and I'm speaking to Abraham, I would say, hello, I am the Lord your God, creator of you. You shall have, let's go, Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall repair the world. What's the first thing that God says to open the covenantal journey between God and the Jewish people? <laughs> says to him, Lech Lecha, move. Move. Leave your land leave your father's house, leave your birthplace, and go to the land that I will show you. God said to Abraham, go forth from your native land, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse the one who curses you, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. As the Jewish people were moving back to the land, religious Zionism, which took the connection between God and the land most seriously, had a profound debate on how to read these verses. In these verses, God says to the Jewish people, there's different ways to read it, but one of the dominant or predominant ways is that God says to Abraham, if you listen to me, if you accept my covenant, I am giving you the mission of being a blessing to the world. Jewish particularism doesn't start by navel grazing, gazing. Jewish particularism doesn't end by saying, 
what's good for the Jew. God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then, and you shall be a blessing. To whom? Not to you. You're going to be a blessed because I blessed you already. But my blessing to you is a tool through which you are now going to be a blessing to the world. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves through you. One of the defining features of early Jewish nationalist thinking was that the Jewish nation was going to be profoundly different than all the other nation states which were forming at the time. Other nations, their focus is on themselves and their own well and their own well-being. Jewish nationalism is about being a blessing to the world. This was a very, very deep part of early Zionist thinking, and in particular of religious Zionist thinking. And they looked at general nationalism in the world as idolatrous. It was focused on you. But nationalism does not happen in a void. Nationalism requires a people. And ultimately, in Genesis 12, it is also grounded in a land. While the first part of the class focused on the theological, holy dimension of the space, it is holy regardless of whether, whether Jews are there or Jews are not there. It's holy regardless of whether we control it or do not control it. The second dimension of land is the connection between this land and the particular mission that the Jewish people have. One reading states that the Jewish story begins and can only begin in the context of the land. Without a connection to land, Jewish, the Jewish narrative, and in fact, Jewish election does not begin. Only after you are in your land could God say to you, now I want some. That's one reason. And I'll take this. It's a subtle point, but it actually has remarkably significant consequences. The second theory is, is that Jewish nationalism does not begin with the land, it begins with the mission. The mission is to be a blessing. The land is a framework that is subservient to the mission. It's a vehicle that enables the actualization of the mission, but the mission is independent to it. And in fact, the Jewish people have a mission to be a blessing to the world, outside of the land of Israel too. In the first reading, in the other reading, the mission comes after the land. The land is not merely a tool for expressing the mission. It is the framework through which the mission could even be conceived. Now, why is this significant? Because if 
the primary telos of Jewish people and of Jewish nationalism is to be a blessing, then being a blessing is more significant than the land. And then you can have a conversation. And to what extent does the land threaten my mission or does it serve my mission? It's a coherent thing to talk about. The primary agenda of Zionism in Israel is to express its universal values. According to the other reading, the primary mission of Zionism is first and foremost to hold on to the land. You can't have a conflict between the land and my universal aspirations because there is no universal conversation unless you have a land. And as a result, I do not question or ever juxtapose land with a universal mission. Land always trumps. In, in, in the other meaning of the term. <laughs> and one of the more important conversations in Israel is precisely about this. What do we start? For one segment, land is never questioned. There's never an argument about whether the land serves my purpose or not. The land is an objective unto itself, for it is what enables Jewish nationalism to be. While for the other, land is just a tool because Jewish nationalism is ultimately about being a blessing. Now, I don't want to get in, there's, um, you know, one of the nicest things about being, um, um, one of the nicest things about getting older is your children are getting older. <laughs> and I'm blessed uh, to have a daughter who's doing her PhD. I ordained her a number of years ago to do a PhD in political philosophy. And she's writing one of the chapters of her PhD. Is, it's all about religious Zionism. And one of them, it's exactly about the, la the notion of chosenness and land in religious Zionism. And so a good part of what I just shared with you is when I, as an Abba, get to be the student of my child. So I'm giving credit where credit is due. Um, and um, I can't go into all of the consequences, but imagine a religious theory which sees the holiness of the land as trumping any moral or ideological discourse. And what would it mean for Israeli politics when the land plays that role? And it all starts in how you read Genesis 12. Now, I want to, I see our time is progressing. I want to end, and by the way, this idea, does God reside in the land? How much, these conversations are, 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 are being bantered about for thousands of years in Jewish history. Come with me, please, to Ezekiel. Actually, we're going to do source eight and nine, and with that, I'll eight, nine, and 10. Let's start with nine. In the period of Ezekiel, the Jewish people go into exile. Now, it could have been 
that the act of exile is the act of the end of the relationship between God and Jerusalem. God says to Abraham, go forth to the land that I will show you, and I will give you that land. When God kicks us out of the land, it could also mean the ending of the covenant. Ezekiel says, say then, thus says the Lord God, I have indeed removed them far among the nations and have scattered them among the countries. And I have become to them a diminished sanctuary, a mikdash ma'at, a small sanctuary in the countries whither they have gone. Yet say, thus said the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. Redemption indeed is still connected to the land. <clears throat> but Jewish life didn't, wasn't suspended the minute the Jewish people exited the land of Israel. Our attitude to the land was not merely defined by Jewish text. It was also defined by Jewish history. And the history of the Jewish people is that Judaism continues here in Babylon. If the land, as Nachmanides says, God only watches the land of Israel, maybe outside of the land of Israel, I don't have to keep Torah. Nachmanides asked that question. He says, the only reason why you have to keep Judaism outside of the land is so that you won't forget for when you come back to the land. It's like you're just faking right now. Or you're just, you're warming up. You're warming up to get called into the game. A game that will only get expressed when you move to the land. Because that's where the connection between God and the Jewish people is alive. But in fact, for 2,500 years, the Jewish people didn't psychologically see themselves as warming up. And you know why? Because you can't. If you see yourself as warming up, guess what you're going to do? If you're warming up and warming up and warming up, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, eventually you'll pick another game. You can't. So the Jewish people had to begin to rethink the nature of their relationship with God. Ezekiel uses the word, I will be to you a small mikdash. Remember, in Jerusalem is a big mikdash. Outside of Israel, God says, I will be a mikdash ma'at. The rabbinic tradition reads mikdash ma'at. Yet I have been to them a little sanctuary. Rabbi Isaac says, this refers to the houses of synagogue and the houses of learning. Do we need the temple? Could I meet God in my shul? In fact, it is in Ezekiel that the claim of Solomon is taken to its logical conclusion. Solomon says, be land-focused, be temple-focused, because individuals need it. But what happened when it is actually counterproductive for our religious life? Because we're living everywhere. Our tradition has a Beit HaMikdash, and it has a Mikdash Ma'at. And we feel that I can engage with 
and I can encounter God also outside of the land of Israel. Jewish history starts with an engagement with the land, but Jewish history is only able to continue by making itself also independent. And one last idea in this story of land and holiness. I actually want to end with a text which speaks about God's unique relationship with the land of Israel, but turns it on its head. And this is source eight in Leviticus. We just read this this week in this week's Parsha. You shall observe my laws and keep my rules that you may live upon the land in security. The land shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill and you shall live upon it in security. And this relates to the laws of the sabbatical year. And should you ask, what are we to eat in the seventh year if we neither sow nor gather in our crops? God says, I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it shall yield a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will still be eating old grain of that crop. You will be eating the old until the ninth year, until its crop comes in. And do you think that's hard? You don't like that? You have a problem with it? The Bible then comes up with the following statement. But the land must not be sold beyond reclaim. For the land is mine. You are but stranger resident within it, with me. Judaism had to separate itself from land in order to continue to survive. It had deep trouble with the meaning of land given its commitment to monotheism. Land was either a place that, of, of, of exceptional holiness, a metaphysically wholly different space, or land was a functional space in which the Jewish story was supposed to unfold. But Leviticus says a really interesting thing. Do you know what holiness means? Do you think holy land means that if you're committed to God, you have to hold on to it? If you take monotheism seriously and the land belongs to God, then guess who it doesn't belong to? You. Nationalism could give profound meaning to the land. But the moment you think that your national aspirations makes you the owner of the land, you're committing idolatry. Because God is the owner of the land. The maximum, as we say in Hebrew, ha-maximum, the maximum that you could ever achieve in a holy space is to be a resident alien in that space. And in fact, the definition of holiness in our tradition is the holier a place is, the less human beings could enter there. The holy of holies, which is the holiest, is the place that no human being other than the Kohen Gadol could go into on Yom Kippur. 
Holiness is not something that is a tool to be owned and mastered in the service of your national aspirations. God is the great humilifier, the great humbler. And when a land is holy, you can live there, but you're not the master. And so our, our tradition dances back and forth. We are a people of the book, but we are also a people of the land. How being a people of the book and being a people of the land lives with each other is part of the story that I just shared with you today. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.